Welcome to Made for Profit, a podcast where we talk business in the shop and help you monetize as a maker. Each week we cover business topics to help you grow your full-time business or your side hustle. We'll also bring you interviews from a variety of people winning in their space to share valuable business insights and life lessons. I'm Brad Rodriguez, a full-time content creator running FixThisBuildThat.com, and my co-host John Malecki runs a full-time furniture company and his content site, JohnMalecki.com. We've been growing our successful businesses online, and we want to bring you into the conversation and help you grow along with us. Welcome to episode 91. Now, as you start becoming a legit business, you start dealing with more and more clients and transactions. And every transaction is a chance to delight your customers and just give them everything that they wanted. Or it's a chance for miscommunication, false expectations, undelivered promises, and two parties left playing he said, she said. Now we all want to have the first scenario rather than the second, and having a contract for your transactions will help you get there. So today we're going to talk about the important things to consider when locking down a contract and setting expectations with your clients. And by no means is this legal advice. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this is for sure not legal advice. Um, We definitely advocate for seeking a professional there. But if you do want some advice from me specifically, that would be to uh, attend this year's Spring Make. (laughs) Yeah, I said it. This year's Spring Make show is coming up quickly and will take place in Cleveland, Ohio on April 25th through the 27th, and Brad and I are both super stoked to be teaching at the show this year alongside some of our former show guests with uh, Laura Kampf, April Wilkerson, Johnny Brook, and Jen Woodhouse, all in attendance, all teaching classes. If you're interested in attending Spring Make this year, you can check out the details over at springmakeshow.com, and you can save $200 off of your ticket with the code MADEFORPROFIT. That is all spelled out, not the number four, but spelled out, F-O-R, Made for Profit. Check it out. Looking forward to seeing a lot of you guys there. We've got a lot of great feedback already on people that will be attending the show, and we are both super stoked to see each and every one of you that'll be there. Absolutely. And I'm super stoked for the for the meetup, too. So if you are in the Cleveland area, uh, there will be a meetup. I, I believe it's Thursday night. We'll have it on the... Um, we'll have it on the Instagram mm-hmm. there, and it will also try to announce it here as well. But um, yeah, there's a meetup. So if you can't make it to the show, but you're in the Cleveland area, make sure you come out to the meetup. That'll be lots of fun. Uh, you know, no admission or anything to there. It's just going to be at a local restaurant pub style thing. Last year, it was amazing. Oh, so, so cool. Yeah. The place was awesome. But it was. Uh, yeah, I think it's actually in the same spot. Nice. Uh, before we do get into it, we also want to thank our new members that joined the Made for Profit patron tribe this week. Uh, and we had Rodney Plitner from Coastal Wood Company. Thank you so much, Rodney, for joining. If you do want to support the show and get some awesome rewards, you can head over to patreon.com forward slash made for profit. All right, man, jumping in. So before we do jump in, uh, so yes, this is, uh, you know, whenever you talk contracts, and quite honestly, we've gotten a lot of questions about contracts along along the way as we've had our 91 episodes. Uh, and frankly, we've avoided it. And we've avoided it because uh, we are not lawyers. We cannot give legal advice. And most of those are like, hey, what should I have in my contract? So today we are not giving legal advice. Uh, we are going to topically discuss contracts about what kind of things you should have in it. Not, We are not going to talk about, you know, and this is all from our, so let me rephrase that. Uh, we are going to talk about things that we think are important in our pieces and our experience. We are not mm-hmm. telling you what to put in yours. Uh, we are going to just discuss you know, some of those things that we've gotten burned by in the past uh, and talking about considerations 
when you're thinking about setting expectations with a customer. As far as legal ramifications and being covered for liability, we will not be discussing that at all. And none of this is construed as legal advice. So anyway, yeah, hopefully yeah, I mean, that so covers it all. <laughs> what, what happens a lot for, for us is we get questions that are extremely individualized um, across the spectrum, and we love answering those. And this is something that has popped up quite a bit. And, and typically when that happens, we try to do a, an entire show on it or at least an after show at a minimum. And, and this has definitely been something like Brad mentioned that we have kind of pushed to the back burner solely because it's, it's, you know, such, I guess, thin glass, you know, to walk on. You, you definitely need to tread lightly uh, based on your uh, specific region and the type of work that you're doing um, and get some true legal advice um, after you sort of get a broader spectrum of the type of contracts you want to be using. So just to reiterate what Brad said, you know, we are not lawyers. We have, I have seeked the professional advice of a lawyer and their advice was to not <laughs> talk about this to specifically not talk about this on the show. But you know, we get so and- much, so many questions <laughs> that we like, we didn't want to not talk about it. So um, just make sure that you are 100% asking a professional that is registered in your state specifically, if you're in the United yes. States or wherever you need uh, contracting licensing done in your region before diving into right. anything like this. So, yeah. And so I think it's OK to, you know, to talk about it. We, at one point we had discussed doing a kind of a printable or a, a lot of people ask for a boilerplate contract. And that is way, way out of the scope yes, of what of what we feel comfortable doing. So, <clears throat> again, just talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, just talking about things here. Um, you know, we, we t- take it as it is, but uh, but we do want to definitely share uh, some of our thoughts and experiences on what we've done. So, I, I think to start off, um, you, you know, talking about contracts. And, you know, and again, even if that's the right terminology, because there's a difference between a contract and agreement. Uh, and I was just talking with some folks uh, over in a Facebook group and and they were talking about the fact that, um, you know, emails can be considered a, a binding contract. If you agree to something you know, in different, again, different municipalities, different things like there's a lot of different things going on. So uh, the whole thing is, is it written down and do the two parties agree uh, with what's going on, you know, with the mm-hmm. transaction. And that that's the main thing. So the whole idea of a contract is to make sure that you're setting the correct expectations. And whether that is through uh, a handshake, uh, you know, on the back of a napkin, in an email, or in a very formalized legal document, um, that's what we're talking about. And that's what really is going to help make you successful is making sure that you're on the same page with your client. And so we're going to discuss, you know, both the product side and the content side. So uh, obviously we have a, a ton of product makers out there and we're going to focus heavily on that, but then we'll also talk about things, you know, whether it's services, which is basically what, uh, what John and I do when we deliver content for, for brands mm-hmm. It's we're providing a service, um, and there is a digital product, but there's different considerations for both of those. So, uh, you know, having it written down, that's, that's the whole idea. And, and it could be as simple. I mean, when you first started out, John, like, when did you move into actually getting something uh, were you both signed versus just having an email or, uh, you know, something that was less formalized? Yeah. I mean, it was probably two years in that I actually, it was after I hired a coach, you know, a business coach that was like, Hey, <laughs> if you want to be seen as a real business, approach it as a real business. So that kind of, uh, changed my mindset on the signing off on things. 
as well as like when you work with designers, architects, contractors, they're typically getting signed documentation just because that becomes ridiculously um, complicated as far as legal goes in who's being right. held accountable. And, you know, just to piggyback what you were saying earlier, I've always looked at a contract as more of a paper trail or uh, some sort of means of holding whatever party is responsible to whatever's happening accountable. Um, and that's, that's where my heart lies in contracts. I'm not trying to, um, hide anything from the client. I'm trying to be as extremely transparent as possible, as well as, um, communicating that, you know, there are, um, certain stipulations within the ramifications of what's happening. Um, to, if, if there's changes made, you know, that affects the timeline and just having like kind of a clear cut rules or whatever, set out there is how I looked at, uh, and still do look at contracts. So uh, with that being said, you know, you'll run into situations a lot where most of us that have just begun selling product, it's, it's a lot of off the cuff, right? It's a lot of word of mouth. It's a lot of like, Hey, I'm looking for a coffee table. You know, can you like give me a quote on uh, this? And, and it kind of starts out as this very casual conversation that evolves into a business transaction, but it, it puts the, question in your head, like, is, is a contract important in those situations? And I think that that is somewhere that a lot of the newer individuals who are selling products start out. And that's where you can kind of fall into a uh, bit of a conundrum when it comes to, right. well, it doesn't you know, feel comfortable covering yourself. And, and right. it's, it's super easy to go, Oh yeah. Coffee table. That's 500 bucks. You know, I, I can make it out of this. And then they come back and go, uh, you know, I was looking for it out of this stain in this color and then three iterations, you know, different sizing, different material type and a change later, you haven't got paid for any of that time. And as well <laughs> as it shows up, there's, it's, it's different than what the, you know, the wife expected and the husband wanted something else. And there's no paper trail because you did it all via phone call. Right. And like, yeah. And I, you show up with it in the back of your truck and they're like that look on their face, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm sure you've, you've seen that look yep. <laughs> where they're like, oh, <laughs> yes. Like, oh, what, what do you mean? Oh, I just spent uh, 30 hours of my life making this for you. Yeah. And uh, why, why, why well, I've are you actually, not excited? So one fortunate thing of using Instagram to market your business that works to your benefit is that typically your clients are going to be following you there and they can see progress. Um, that way you don't run into a situation where it shows up and it's a complete surprise. So that's, <laughs> yes. you know, that's something fortunate. But what I, what I noticed was that, you know, I wasn't putting the contract first and I still kind of lax with this now that I'm not doing as much custom work. Um, but you know, what I, what you want to in the bare minimum consider a contract to be is some sort of paper trail for accountability towards whatever's going on in your project. Um, and the clients that have the money up front that are willing to pay are typically not going to care about contracts, right? They're just going to say, Hey, you know, here's a thousand bucks. I'm looking for this. And you're like, boom, they hand it over. You get cruising. They're typically cool with it. They're typically the clients that are a lot more lax as well when it comes to iterations, timelines, uh, color changes, material types, and that kind of stuff. Where you're going to run into issues, though, are when you're on larger scale projects with multiple parties involved, as well as uh, you're working with some sort of liaison, whether it's a designer or whether it's an architect or something like that, as well as um, just stickler clients that like to be a pain. Uh, those are going to be where you want to put yourself in the best position to make sure that everything on your end is handled properly. And the the most basic, I think, that you want to make sure you're doing is getting at least a sign-off on a drawing or a sign-off on a sketch. You know, something that is listing out the material type, the timeline, the color, 
and the delivery date. Like that's it. Yeah. You can I mean, go think that's the titles. basics of a contract, you know, the, the who, what, when, and how much, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, who, this is between me and you, uh, what are we making the design you just talked about? When am I going to deliver it? And how much are you going to pay me for it? I mean, those are like the absolute basics you should have. Um, and it, you could legitimately just have a four line contract, like between Brad and John, I'm going to make you a coffee table. I will deliver it on December 3rd uh, and you will pay me $800. Mm-hmm. Like that is the absolute bare minimum, I believe, that you would want to have in there. Uh, and then, you know, like you said, John, I, I love the idea of, uh, you know, behind the what is it? it's not just a coffee table, but you would have a design spec signed off, which would cover a lot of those things that, um, you know, could be left unsaid, but have different expectations between the two. And so having having the render or having that portfolio where, like you said, whether they're looking at your Instagram and you have you know, even like you can use uh, like even DMs. I mean, that's that's written, right? Anything written like the verbal piece, I think, is the biggest thing you want to avoid when you're out there talking. I mean, I mean, this isn't like this isn't 1950 anymore. Right. We're not like I'd be like mm-hmm. that farmer. You spit in your hand and you shake hands and yeah. you're like, you know, word is bond. Like that. <laughs> this is yes. this is not that's that actually any... that's actually what our business agreement for made for profit looks like. There was, was a taco yeah. involved too, but it was it was yeah, it was a taco, a Bud Light, and a, a spit handshake, <laughs> and it was formed. Um, and it's so yeah, having those things written down in whatever form or fashion they are, uh, even if so, I think that's one thing that that I've really. Um, tried to do as I've learned because I've run into those issues when you've you've talked to somebody, then you come back later. I, I, I don't, did I say that? I didn't say that. Is um is recapping. So if you do have a verbal conversation with somebody, like like you said, John, uh, word of mouth is a perfect example. You might be out at a bar, you might be out at an event, you might be out at a neighbor's house and, and one of their friends is over that you've not met and you start talking about something. Um, follow up, get their contact information, always get an email from them Always. and then follow up, email them and say, Hey, it was great to meet you. You know, we talked about doing this and then recap the conversation. So now what you've done is you've just taken that conversation, you've recapped it. And then that, what happens is that gives them a chance to say, Oh no, no, actually, or, Oh, I went back and measured and uh, yeah, we actually can't fit an eight foot table. It probably needs to be more like a seven foot table. Then that, that conversation starts happening uh, and the documentation starts happening in the email, which will eventually, you know, get down where you can hammer it out and, and finalize it. But, um, always, always get it in writing if you can. Um, and and some people, you know, don't want to do that, but still you need to push for it. Yes. And I think that the, uh, (sighs) the best reason you should be doing these things is going to be when you can either look back on a bad experience that you've had in business um, and realize where the, a lot of it could have been prevented in a contract, as well as having you know the foresight to know the type of individual who could potentially pop their head out and hit you with some stuff that you don't want uh, to have to deal with legally um, on, on your side. So I've had a you know just as an example, I've had a, a client in the past who um, had a reputation in in the city I'm in um, for like. <laughs> screwing over their contractors. And when they reached out to me, it was a considerably large job. And I knew that um, I could make a good chunk and get a nice piece of, uh, you know, portfolio builder out of it, as well as some practice on some things I wanted to do. Um, and it could be a nice stepping stone for me. And I'm, I'm talking like tens of thousands of dollars for this 
project specifically. But I also knew that there was the potential I could get screwed. So, you know, after talking to my business coach at the time and, um, you know, we came up with a contract that kind of led into the idea of my design contract, which we've talked about in the past. Um, And that contract essentially laid out the scope of work that I was willing to do, right? The coloring, the timeline, uh, the you know, material types and basically all the details, literally anything I could think of, I put it on there. Um, and I made sure that if the time came that they would try to stoop me on anything that I had some type of paper trail to back myself up. And I'm talking, you know, uh, I, I think I've said this in the past on the show that if a client is wants to move over to text messaging for communications, you need to be Super careful with that, especially if your phone's clearing texts after time frame. Make sure you're screenshotting those because you need that paper trail. And that's exactly what happened to me. My phone clears uh, iMessages and conversations after 30 days, but m- fortunately, my laptop doesn't, and it keeps them for like ever. Tons of tons of storage space get used up there. But what happened was I had to go and pull eight months of text messages in order to keep myself um, in line for this contract that I had because exactly the reputation that this client had, they tried to pull on the back end of it. Um, and they were talking about, you know, some like not paying me and that, that I wasn't going to get this and that. And I, I reached out and no one wants to go pay. No one wants to go pay a lawyer, right? No one wants to go to court. And fortunately for me, my fiance is a lawyer, so (laughs) I'm not paying for her to have to send, you know, typically you're paying hourly to send, um, any type of, whatever proposals and blah, 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 and all that stuff. Um, right. So I was actually able to take the, the proper legal steps um, based on the contract that we had previously to get myself out of a bad situation. And it all came from having the process and everything handled kind of upfront where I clearly laid out what would be done. Um, and if you look at like contractors, for instance, it's a great example of they write out a scope of work. And if the client signs off on it, if the contractor doesn't deliver, they're liable. If they do deliver and the client isn't paying, the client's liable. Like it's pretty simple in that right. regard. It's it's cut and dry when you get into the court of law. Whatever's yes. written is written, and whatever happened on the back end that's not written doesn't matter. Now that can get cloudy, and like like Brad and I said before, we're not lawyers, but having those text messages, email chains, some sort of a paper trail that's not he sure. said she said right. really right, does right. help. Now it's not exactly. it's not. You know, it's not justifiable legal documentation, but it does help when you're trying to make an argument towards you getting, you know, things going one way or the other. Because in the end, it's a judge, right? It's somebody, depending upon, you know, how it, if it's in arbitration or like, you know, we're we're touching our toes a little bit deeper than we want to go here. But anyway, if, if, if something ever does happen, um, there is the contract. And then a lot of contracts basically say this contract is the full contract and nothing outside of this contract matters. And again, I don't know how much that <laughs> if that overrides, like if somebody sent you a text and was like, no, um, I know I wrote this in the contract, but I really want you to do this. Like, I, I don't know how that works. Yeah. And I'm sure it all depends upon the arbitrator or the judge or whoever it's going in front of. Right. I mean, this again, like you said, John, it just all becomes cloudy at that point. Yep. But having the documentation um, there is going to help you if you're on you know, the side that is, uh, you know, in, in the right where the other person versus what they said is not holding up to what they said. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's just all, <laughs> it, it can be super, super cloudy, but 
the idea here is that you never want to get there, yes. right? And so setting those expectations, um, you know, you're not, I, I like what you said at the beginning, John, you're not writing a contract, you know, to, for kind of legal recourse, but you're more writing it to set those expectations. I mean, that's the whole idea and to protect yourself on the front end. So why, why don't we hit some of those important things on the front end? Like you, you, you touched on it there, design time, because I think, you know, we've talked about that in the past and and we've definitely heard uh, listeners. I think that's one of the hardest things for a um, you know a side hustler, somebody new into the business, to get their arms around is like because they're trying to win business, and so they're doing all these you know SketchUp drawings or hand drawings and, and going back and forth because they want they want to win that bid, they want to sell that table, yep. and and that's where you can spend a lot of time. Where if all of a sudden you've spent a week back and forth in countless hours, and then they walk away, what are you left with? You know, do you get any money out of it? So, well, you know, what was that piece that you changed? You talked about your design contract, John. What what does that, uh, you know, what should people think about as they think about getting paid for design time? So what you should be considering, um, and, and it's always going to be valuing your time um, properly. And you could value design time in whatever quantifiable number that you think is justifiable for you. But you can also look at it in a uh, sort of complement to your shop time, right? So if you're charging $50 an hour for your, you know, expert, uh, you know, high level woodworking or furniture making skill set in the shop, the design aspect of that is probably pretty proportional to the amount of value that you're giving to the client as well. So don't just say that, you know, ah, 15 bucks an hour for design time, just be, and then you charge 50 in the shop, like make sure that that number makes sense in the grand scheme of things. Cause I know a lot of the drawings that I've done, especially if you're doing stuff like cabinetry, like when you get into, especially a, a software like SketchUp where it's not parabolic and you don't, or excuse me, parametric, and you don't have uh, the ability to change a lot of details easily, you could get into hours and hours and hours of right. just adding a bead molding to your doors like (laughs) it's the worst so quantify your time properly based on your expertise within the shop so if you feel like 35 dollars an hour is justifiable for your design time you know uh, and you charge 50 in the shop that's that's fantastic but now you need to take the i would say the mean of your last five to ten projects that you're trying to move the most. So if they're dining tables, for instance, and your average price of a dining table is $1,000, right? And you're looking at the final sale of this product and you want to charge a design fee, I would go with a percentage. 10 to 15% of the final price um, is typically going to be something in my experience a client is very comfortable with. You know, if you ask them for 100 to 150 bucks up front, in order to do the design and you clearly lay out that you're going to be doing uh, two to three uh, iterations of the design, right? After that, you're going to be charging $35 an hour per hour for any uh, other iterations. And then you clearly communicate, you know, to the client that uh, you're how many hours you estimated taking in order to fix the drawing or whatever it might be. Um, you have them pay for that before you touch it. And that's the key is that, you don't just tell them like, hey, I'm going to send over a contract. I already got started on your design. If you could just sign that and get it over, we're going to you know, do this design contract. No, 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 no. Be a stickler to this part, right? If someone is not willing to pay you $100 up front, then they're probably not, one, the type of client you want, and two, they're probably going to be a pain in the butt. Um, 
And right. like that, so those things are easy. And at 35 an hour, you're looking at, you know, little, little under three hours of work, uh, for the design, which you should be 100% capable enough to get a standard piece of furniture sketched and done, um, at least for a client's, uh, viewing in three hours. If you're not, then you need to work on that skill set as well. And that's kind of the balance here is that I know the amount of time that I'm putting into drawings is quantified in how much easier it makes closing sales for me. That's why I'm more, that's why I'm willing to put the time and effort into them up front, but I have to get paid for it first. So right. send over a, 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 do not make this a ridiculously uh, involved contract. It's literally just going to lay out uh, the items that I just said, the amount of renditions, what the contract does, then let them know clearly that you'll be deducting that deposit from the final price of the um, the piece that you're working on for them. Um, what I've noticed is that like you typically get send that over, they pay it, you send them the sketches um, for a piece of furniture and you're great. Where you run into issues are built-ins, cabinetry, uh, just because there's so many options for so many different aspects in those. Right. Um, and that's where I've really realized that this design contract can save me a ton of time, not only because I'm getting paid up front for my design time, but the client knows that you're paying if you want to keep making changes. And because that's crystal clear up front, they're, they're more than likely to just agree with you <laughs> and right. not, and, not and be like, oh, like you know, can fee. I get like, a, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, it's like the change fee when you're doing over? houses. Yeah. So like when you're designing a new home, uh, you know, there, there's that whole punch list and then you sign off, same type of thing. And then like, if you want to make a change, man, they will bang you for changes like that. So once once you get past the initial design, like the charge on that stuff goes up. Now, it's it's a little bit different because they more charge for like, oh, you want another outlet? Yeah, that's going to be $500. Like, what that $500 to add an outlet right there? Yeah, that's right. Uh, or, you know, they hit you for really high. So when you're doing design, it's a little bit different because it's, you know, like you said, hourly. Uh, so it's, it's only as much as it's going to take you to design it. But at the same time, I think having some teeth in that uh, is a good thing, like you said, John. So it's not uh, because what will happen is that if you do... I, what I see, so just from the outset, right? So it, to be very clear, I've I've never done this with a client. I've built stuff for clients, but it's it's been all, you know, a, a spit shake and a Mountain Dew. Um, and so when when I think about that uh, and I hear that, all of a sudden I think when you do go to that extra design time, I think. Um, tell me if I'm wrong here, John, but just thinking out loud, that you would not want to count that towards the project. Because then like you could go back and forth and like you said, it's a thousand bucks, but all of a sudden like they're like, oh no, I want to change this, change that, change this, change that. And all of a sudden you've got them into $400 worth of design for a thousand dollar piece. And so you just cut $400 out of your margin because of all the time you used, right? So there's some, there's some pieces there that you can't. The change, uh, the change items, no, they are not. The that's doctor. what I'm saying. So yeah, for the change, just the initial fee, right. you could say if it's a hundred so or 250, 250, whatever it is, that's yeah. deducted. Any, any additional time is yeah. will not be and like that's yeah. that was pretty clear I think that's a yeah and that's yeah, a that's a, there, a that piece i want to hit on yeah that because <laughs> right because all of a sudden if you've spent 15 hours designing and you're like okay cool i got 400 bucks on this and they're like well yeah but you're deducting that right you're like no just the first hundred dollars or whatever so uh so make sure of that so I, I think that's a really good one but also just to hit on um you know having a portfolio like John mentioned, if it's something very, very specific, it's going to be hard to have a portfolio for a built-in for every situation that a client's going to be happy with.
But if you're selling tables, if you're selling kind of those stock items, you know, you don't have to design something new. That's the beauty of it, right? So use yeah. the things you've done in the past, use your portfolio of products you built. You may not even like, hopefully you don't have to do any design time. And so that's just time you save because you can say, hey, here's this, you know, stock uh, seven foot dining table out of Walnut. And they say, and you, and then you say, here's one I made uh, with a natural finish. Here's one where I darkened it with some Danish oil. You know, here's one, blah, 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 whatever, uh, that I used a, a, a white pickling stain on. Mm. Oh, white pickling on Walnut. That would be, I wouldn't know. That's probably a thing. But anyway, you show them those three things. So it's like the same design and then they can just pick the actual finish. You've not had to do any design work. And then you just, you know, you lock it in. You have an uh, an attachment to the contract, which is, hey, this is the exact piece that you're going to get. Um, but again, that, you know, knowing that wood has variances, blah, blah, blah. You always want to make sure that uh, clients know that. I know, John, you got <laughs> burned in that with the wingy uh, yeah. piece. But, uh, you know, Sarah ended up with a nice jewelry box uh, <laughs> several years later. Yes. But, uh, yeah, making sure that clients know uh, when you do show them pieces, I, I think that is important that um, that they shouldn't expect to get that exact piece because some clients don't understand that wood is a natural thing. And, you know, wood uh, is not something that's printed out of a printing machine that everything looks the same. So, you know, may have a little bit more sapwood, may have a little bit less, may have knots here or there. Like those are the small things, I think, where people uh, can get tied around the axle on is like, oh, what? why is there a or I thought there was going to be more knots in the top. I wanted more of a rustic look. Well, no, I used clear lumber for this. Like those are the little things that I think you need to make sure to hammer out. Yes. And make sure that if if that's like that, I usually iterate in my contract that Keller samples will be handled uh, outside of this contract. So for instance, I will give that, we'll pick a material type, but as far as like gloss, semi-gloss, satin, stain, those things are handled in person and that individual will sign off. So I will literally cut and make them, you know, as many samples as I feel necessary for that specific job and then either mail them or uh, drive them to the client and make sure that they like the color in their home, all that. Because callbacks cost you more money than initial time invested up front. So if you're going to put that in your contract, excuse me, if you're going to go about that route, make sure that's in your contract. You know, all coloring and sampling will be handled via uh, USPS or um, in-person meeting in order to decide coloring, finishes, um, et cetera. Material choice is is itemized on this uh, on this contract as, you know, uh, northern black walnut. Um, and we will be uh, moving forward as far as any more specifics in person. And, like, just make it clear. One sentence. Boom. That way it's handled. Yeah. Um, paint. Because you can run into Yeah. You don't want to try to beat up your clients with the design contract, right? Like this isn't your opportunity to make money here. Your opportunity no. here is to just make sure that you're finding one, the right client and two, getting paid for your design time. Now, last thing I want to say on this is do not go into a design contract thinking that you can start adding uh, more on top of what the client asked for, for your own sake, because you think it's cool and fun and then beat them up with, uh, more invoices. So like if you, if, you know, if you go into a project and clients like, Oh, you know, I'm looking for a shaker styled, uh, you know, two bit, two base cabinet, uh, countertop, a wooden countertop with floating shelves above it. Don't come back to them after that with some ridiculous pull out drawers and, you know, uh, a, a, a lazy Susan 
with built-in top, you know, wall mounted, whatever they're not looking for, and then try to charge them. Like that is not the point of this contract. The point of this contract is to just clearly state up front that you will not be working for free. And that if they want to take your drawing and go find someone else to build it, you're completely fine with that as long as you're paid. And it's boom, like that's it. I've run into situations where I've literally had the clients sign these before and I disliked working with them so much that I didn't even follow up. I was just like, keep, keep it. I'll keep your 250. Just go, just buy. I never want to hear or see from you again. Like you are, you are the literal bane of my existence because, because in the contract, you know, I could easily go and get all butthurt about not losing the job and all this other stuff. But at the end of the day, like these, this is in place to make your life easier and their life easier. It's not to overly complicate things. It's not to muddy the waters in any way. So just like, be sure that that is how you're approaching any sort of design contract. Yeah. I like the idea of that too, of that there's a design contract. So it's not a contract for the full item yet. So you have the opportunity to back out too. Yeah. Uh, and that way, like you said, so then they're like, okay, yeah, we're ready to move forward. Then you can say, you know, Hey, uh, now I think that could be a little sticky cause it is, uh, um, There'd have to be some language there, obviously, if you made it non-refundable, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so figure that out. But having something where you can get out of that as well, that if you've just in that short time dealt with them, that you're like, this is not worth it. Um, but yeah, I, I think you'd have to have something there to um, to protect yourself because you can't just charge people for design and then say, oh, but I'm not going to build that. So, I mean, depends upon how the contract's written. But anyway. All right. So let's move on. I think we yeah. hit that pretty, pretty good. But so on the back end. So you, I one think, last thing. I just, I just pulled up the last design contract I think I've ever sent. And, I, and just to read some of the line items, I, it literally says, has a, <laughs> I line out the client's name, their address, the project, right? Because if you're doing multiple projects for a client, you need to itemize each one of those specifically because it's going to be a different time. Say if you're doing, um, if you're doing a vanity, a dining table, and a cabinet, you know, the design that goes into a vanity is going to be a little bit different than the cabinet and blah, blah, blah. So itemize those out. And then I line line out that the client name um, hereby authorizes myself to perform design on this project. Nothing else, right? Just the design. Then you go down and you can service, uh, you can go out and line item some services like drawings, renderings, revisions, material options. Um, material, excuse me, preliminary budget, scope of work, um, and send it over to them and have them follow, uh, follow up. Now I got mine legally revised by a, um, a lawyer just to make sure that it was, you know, what are, what are those things called? A, uh, a <laughs> lawyer, a law- uh, 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 my fiance, uh, I'm, over, her I'm just, <laughs> and actually this was before her and I met. So it was a, it was a good friend of mine and we swapped some stuff, but the, uh, the, the way he went about fixing it to make it proper was worth its weight in gold. Right. So, you know, yeah. that's the, the last, you thing, just never think about. Well, that's the last thing I wanted to reiterate here was that like, don't try to be a lawyer on your own. Make sure that if you are going to go about something that requires signatures and that is professional, that you have just, just find someone to revise it for you that knows what they're talking about and knows what the language should look like. Cause going into like the next part of this conversation, you know, as Brad and I work with brands and we work with, uh, as content creators, that language is like, it's like speaking oh, French. It's, 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 it's a different heavy. world and you need to be trained in order to 
not only understand it, but regurgitate it properly. Because yeah. you miss a period or a or a we as or some sort of or reference here to four and, and like yeah, it, <laughs> the whole thing. Implodes. You could be toast. It change it could change the entire meaning of a sentence. So uh, absolutely agree with that. So on on the back end, so we we hit that pretty heavy. Now on the back end for delivery and warranty, I did want to hit that because that is something I think we hear a lot of is warranty. So let's say you deliver the piece, uh, you know they're super happy with it. Everybody feels good. They pay you the uh, transaction is done for all intents and purposes. And then uh, six months later, two years later, five years later, <laughs> uh, they call you because something happened. And and I think that that is something that uh, the more and more furniture you sell, it you know it's an inevitability that something is going to happen. And whether, so then there's a whole, uh, you know, there's a whole spectrum of what could happen from, oh, uh, you sold somebody a table with a breadboard in that you pocket hold to the end, uh, that you pocket screwed to the end, dun, and dun, it, dun. it blew up, you know, because of the changes and it was locked and you didn't allow for movement. To uh, you know, a toddler grabbed, you know, a, a knife off the kitchen table and and hacked up the leg, right? And so something that you know you are accountable for, something that somebody else is accountable for. So like in the warranty phase, like what does that and warranty phase meaning after delivery so um you know do you ever put warranties on your stuff john is it more of uh you know what i've always heard and seen is is it's more of just the the gentleman's handshake so to say is mm-hmm. is that like i said like you're a lot of that comes to the point that legally if you've not lined out a warranty that legally you've delivered the thing and it's it's just done like you said what you delivered what you said you would they signed off on it and it's on them, but as a business owner and somebody who wants to uh, have repeat business from that person, uh, as well as good word of mouth, that you sometimes are, are going to you know take one for the team and go fix some things that might be borderline. And by all means, we'll fix things that you did that you didn't know you shouldn't have done. You know, for instance, like if somebody did sell that breadboarded pocket screwed in and they didn't realize because they were such a new builder that they didn't realize it was a bad thing to do that they would go and fix that. How's how's that kind of played out in in your progression well, of a builder? That's one thing that's that honestly pushed me away from custom work. It was because you have both ends of the spectrum. You have fantastic clients who appreciate your time, who completely understand that there's things in the world that are out of all of our hands that happen, especially when it comes to furniture. And then there's clients that think that they need to call you for literally every little thing that happens. So um, I don't typically have a written warranty for my stuff. It's more of the handshake gentleman's deal. And depending on the project and what's happened to it, I just, I'm just crystal clear in that interaction with the client. So for instance, you know, when I was beginning out, if I purchased uh, some, you know, material that wasn't up to a furniture grade standard, like some <laughs> like some roughs on cherry off of a guy's garage that was a good price and it ends up exploding. No, I replaced yes. that tabletop. Um, and that's because that's on me. I made the mistake there. But I've also had clients that have bought something that their you know kid has drawn on the table or you know ran a uh, something into in a corner or broke it or whatever. That I just let them know, you know, like, hey, it's a it's 150 bucks for me to come out to your house, and you know, I can do the fix there. Um, or you let them know, I'll have to come pick the table up and disassemble it. I'm going to need it for three days, um, and it's going to cost you most likely this. 
But I, you, you definitely have to take into consideration what you said. Who's at fault there? Is it the client or is it yourself? Because IKEA is not going to fix something that you broke. Well, IKEA is not going to fix anything. But like, <laughs> like restoration hardware has a lifetime warranty on a lot of their stuff. But if you go and take a knife into their couch and cut it to pieces, they're not replacing that, right? right. But like, if you're sitting on it and in general wear, the stitching starts to come loose. They'll replace that. So. You've got to right. look at who's at, the, who's at fault there. And the whole um, normal wear and tear type yes. thing, right? That that's a and that is a huge thing. I mean, so all these I know all these you know, sofa companies, they sell um all these furniture companies in general will sell a lot of warranties, but then man, if you go go look at a warranty for a piece of furniture from, you know, Lazy Boy or whoever, uh and and read the warranty. I mean, it is it is deep and they will get you for anything and everything and a lot of those things to keep the warranty, you have to have it serviced. You know, you have to keep a, yep. you know, a, a stain blocker on it every twelve months or whatever those things are. That's for most warranty. There is a piece about maintenance uh, across the board for for most warranty work. Uh, you know, like even for your car. Like if you're like, hey, my engine blew. They're like, well, were you changing the oil every three thousand miles or whatever it is? Uh, no, I never changed the oil in sixty thousand miles. Is that a problem? Like, yes, that's a problem. That's you weren't following maintenance recommendations. So. Uh, you know, I, I think by and large, the warranty piece as a custom furniture maker, either you have to nail it down super tight or there's going to be a lot of gray area and you're going to have to navigate that as a business owner as to how much uh, liability you're going to take on uh, to make the customer happy. And there's going to be a lot of judgment calls, right? Like like John said, so if if um, the seams start splitting and things are warping on a table, well, was did they have that in their living room in a nice climate controlled area or did they go put that in storage uh, down in the swamps of Louisiana, you know, yeah. in a storage facility and that happened and then they moved it back into a house in in, you know, Phoenix and it blew up. Like there's there's a lot of gray in there and the biggest thing that uh, you know, I think I would recommend is just to be upfront with your customers about how to care for the table and about the properties of wood. And just to let them know that, hey, you know, things are going to expand and contract as you go through the season. So make sure if you sell somebody a table with a, you know, properly uh, mortised breadboard end, let them know, hey, uh, in this, you know, depending upon when you built it, hey, in the summer, this little piece right here, this is going to stick out. And that's normal, right? Like this is the expansion and, and educate your customer on why you made a breadboard end. So it will help keep the top flat. But there is going to be movement in the wood. Uh, set those expectations. Again, I think, you know, the main through line of this conversation is just setting expectations with your customers and letting them know what to expect and what's going to happen down the line. For sure. And, and warranty is definitely something that I would suggest handling on whatever you feel comfortable. There's no blanket answer to warrantying your work. Um, if you feel like that your skill set is to a point that you should never have to do a follow-up or go touch up your furniture ever again, that's fine. But just make sure that it's understood to your client. Like Brad said, you know, this was, you know, this is built Perfect. <laughs> it shouldn't have any issues. If it does, give me a call. I'll take care of it. Uh, but if you're on the other end and you're brand new, you like I've had tables that I build out of reclaimed wood, for instance, that have bowed um, because the wood uh, shrinkage and the moisture, like it, it's the reclaimed wood's awful. But I've just completely replaced the tops, you know, and, and, and it solved all my issues sort of in those types of situations. So you're going to run into that and just be ready to handle those on an individual basis if that's how you want to do it. Or like Brad said, create some sort of um, blanket statement that your business will, will uphold. And depending on how many people you've got, you know, 
just do it the right way. But you do want to be crystal clear about it. Um, and callbacks are the worst. So I try to avoid them at all costs. You know, if you can avoid being called back to a client, you probably did a good job. Um, also, like Brad said, you just want to let them know how to properly maintain whatever you're giving them. Um, and all of these can be written out in your actual product contract, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's you write it down once, you know, don't use any harsh detergents when cleaning these surfaces. Right. It will, you know, affect the, it'll affect the look. Yeah. It'll Depending upon what kind of finish you, you put on there too, right? Because yes. if you put a penetrating oil versus a, you know, film building polyurethane, you're going to tell them to clean it different and they might not know. And, and mm-hmm. the resistance, um, to water, if you're using a lacquer finish, you know, heat and water, are, are much worse versus like a polyurethane. So that's, you're going to want them to know the properties of their finish and what they can and can't get away with. One of the things I see just, you know, not even, I don't even know where these people got their stuff, but it's like people putting hot plates down on, on furniture and, and how resistant is the finish you put on there to that and how easy is it to fix? Because, you know, if, if they do, you have to think if you're doing a film finish, repairing a film finish is much more difficult than repairing an oil finish because you know, you can just sand one spot and then refinish an oil-based finish, but on a film finish, you pretty much have to redo the whole thing. So, um, you know, putting that in there. And then also, I, I think a good idea, um, you know, if I'm, as I'm thinking about it, something is just, if you're going to talk about doing callbacks or something, like even just saying like, hey, it's, it's uh, you know, 150 bucks for a service trip or something like that. Just again, something to set an expectation that if I have to come back out to fix something um, that wasn't due to my, you know, production uh, and the way it was made, it's going to cost you some money. So I think that would be a good thing. But I think that I think that's a great conversation around product. Um, you know, and, and I think rightfully so. That's probably the, you know, the first three quarters of the show. So let's let's change over to content and more of service style um, deliverables. And, and that's something that I do, uh, you know, basically as the only thing I do, uh, because the, the products I'm delivering are digital. So it's a whole different type of thing. But for me, um, if when you're working with a brand, uh, we'll talk about specifically, or if you're working uh, for anybody that it could be a, a company, but you're doing marketing for them, uh, is it's all about deliverables and timing. So same type thing, and it's a lot easier though because it's it's pretty straightforward in the sense of a deliverable. Then you're talking about uh, one Instagram post, one YouTube video, and then what are you going to do in those? How how are you going to present that person's product? Um, are you going to just use it? Are you going to talk about it? Are you going to give them a, a 10 second, you know, mid roll ad spot, a 60 second? Like those are the things as you start working with a brand again is, is being very specific. Um, so just saying, Hey, I'm going to use your saw on this video, uh, leaves things open, really open. And so you need to nail that down. Like let them know I'm going to use it. I'm going to talk about the features, uh, you know, whatever those things are. And, you know, am I going to have an overlay on the screen? Those are all things that, uh, you know, as you're talking about um, marketing somebody's product, that those are the types of things you want to have in a contract or an email to agree upon. Yeah. And I typically handle those as vaguely as possible <laughs> because I'm, <laughs> <You can't. laughs> I'm, there's a lot more leeway there. I'm, as uh, well. I'm of the, so there's two ways to handle it, right? I mean, you can set the terms for yourself, right? Or you can allow the client to set the terms or whomever sending you over that contract. And then you amend them, right? And uh, I typically, you know, like if you guys watch my content, you know, I don't typically run ads. Like there's no mid-roll. There's no overlay. Like there's, that's, it's, if I put it there, it's there. It's not like, there's no consistency in it for me, except that it's not consistent. 
or typically not there. <laughs> Consistently inconsistent. And, and my sponsors are typically, I'm trying to work with brands that want to be uh, getting a general um, like product placement and a brand awareness. Top of mind, Top brand of awareness, mind feel, brand awareness feel. Because right. I'm building, you know, my audience is a lot more of the semi-professional uh, that's looking to, I guess, up their tool set if it's looking at a tool company specifically or something like that. Um, and because of that, I leave my contract just, if they don't ask me for a mid roll, I'm not doing one, but it's also right. like, it's not that I wouldn't do one. They just didn't ask. And so you, this is another opportunity to make sure that those lines are clear. Like I understand that. And so does the client. And if the client doesn't, because they didn't put it in the contract, it's on them. It's not on me. If I don't deliver on that, but you need to make sure what is those crystal clear deliverables like, like Brad was talking about there, because that's really where water can get muddy, um, especially when you're dealing with with very large brands that have multiple facets of their business and legal department doesn't communicate with the marketing department and marketing doesn't communicate with finance right. and they well, happen to be in uh, Europe and they don't speak English. <laughs> like you can this, this is extremely common. And this is also why we recommend having a lawyer or right. having a lawyer but fiance. I, <laughs> I think that's the best of of both worlds. Uh, but I... I so hitting on that, I, I like that where you're going with that, John, because um, a lot of that is that when you start talking with somebody, you're typically talking with somebody in marketing, right? And so somebody, you reach out to them, they reach out to you, uh, you say, hey, uh, I love using your product. And they say, hey, we love your content. Let's do something together. That's that's typically how one of these relationships works. And then from there, um, the marketing folks are, are typically, you know, again, pretty easy to work with. Like they understand your your content and like John said, so let's take uh, uh, Laura Camp, for example, who, you know, was just on the show and we talk about Laura doesn't even speak in her videos. So clearly they're if a brand comes to work with her and they actually know her, they're not going to ask her for, you know, a 30 second mid roll spot for her talking about a, yeah. about a product because like that's not what she does. Right. So but uh, the legal department doesn't know that. And so they might have a standard boilerplate contract mm -hmm. and. You know, if Laura doesn't review that and she signs off, then they could conceivably at the end and she delivers her her normal thing and it doesn't contain those things. They have grounds not to pay her. Uh, so that's the that's the disconnect that John was hitting on there is that when you're working with a company versus an individual like, you know, in product sales, you're typically working with an individual, um, even though, you know, you still can work with businesses, obviously. Uh, but they're typically small businesses and they're not these huge conglomerate, massive, you know, Fortune 500 businesses. And so as you do that, you need to be super careful because, uh, you know, I think the longest contract I ever got, I think it was 15 pages, like 15 pages. And this was for this was for like three YouTube videos and like three Instagram. You know, I mean, this is like yes. <laughs> the amount of, you know, legalese, they, they like to call it the legalese. Uh, it's, there is so much in there and it, the things that you will have to really worry about and look at will be, um, so one of the most important things that I look for is who owns the content. So you want to be, you want to be crystal clear on when you make that content. Um, a lot of times what companies will write in is like, oh, you are a contractor for us and you are making this contact, f this content for us and we will own that content. And it may be on your YouTube channel, but we own the rights to it. Uh, and and one of the the popular th um, terms out there is it's called work for hire. So go research that if, if you want to find out more about it. Uh, but 
If you do something work for hire, basically that's saying that they're hiring you as a contractor to make content and that they will own all the rights to it. And if that is called out in the contract, then that's what it is. And at any point in time down the road, they could come back and say, hey, oh, you know that video that's got uh, two million views on your channel? You need to delete that because we discontinued that product and we don't want that content out there anymore. And you're like, what? Yep. Yeah. I'm making $500 a month in YouTube ad revenue off that. They're like, I could care less. Like it's in the contract. We own it. Take it down or we will sue you. Yes. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and these, uh, and, and this isn't like, a lot of people tend to think that legal talk is sneaky when like, it's actually just crystal clear. And the, as I stated earlier in the, uh, earlier in the episode is that the language is just really, really not the easiest thing to read and that you do kind of have to have a training and understanding to understand what's going into some of these contracts. Cause these are, you know, lawyers that are writing these things up and they use terminology and verbiage. That is, it's not like talking to your buddy at the bar. Like it is way yeah. different. So you, I can't advocate enough to uh, hire a lawyer. If you have a friend that's a lawyer and you get a contract and you, you know, want to tr- trade them a cutting board for an hour of their time or something like that, you know, like get someone that knows how to read legal jargon to read your contracts. Even if you think that they're completely you know, crystal clear and cut and dry. Um, you can run into some stuff. And that was in that work for hire clause was something a couple years ago that like, if I didn't know Brad, that I would have pretty much been screwed. Cause I, you know, I didn't have uh, the wherewithal to find someone professional and Brad had some experience looking at contracts and he just said, Hey, watch out for this clause. It's, it's pretty common. Um, it's not that they're sneaking it. It's just how the disc, you know, the uh, disconnect between a legal department and a, and a and a marketing department can be, and you know they might actually ask to own your work. So, right, those uh those types of situations are are pretty common, and I wouldn't don't feel like you're trying to get slighted. Just understand that that there's departments and some big brands, and like that's yeah. Kind of how well, it here's work. the deal: the reason they want because so when you're working with a brand, typically. Um, the legal department, like their whole job is to mitigate risk, right? I mean, their their job is to make sure that the company uh, is <laughs> is protected, right? I mean, that's that's the whole idea yep. for the lawyers is that they want to protect the company um, in any way and shape form that they can. So obviously by owning the content, that's going to have the utmost protection because then they can do anything they want to with it. They can take it down. They can have it edited, whatever it is. Uh, And so if something comes up that they can, boom, they can squash it very quickly. Uh, Whereas if you own it, then it's a whole different thing. So what I typically do, and and so if some companies will ask for it, some won't. And typically what happens is like, if you just, like you said, John, it's not, a lot of times also, they just don't really even know what they're asking for. No, Like they put it out there and it's just boilerplate. And you say, hey, like what you're asking to own this, like, uh, and basically, so what I say, if I ever get that, clause in my contract. I just say, Hey, I own all my content. I will give you a license. So the, the way around that is, and that's the other thing too, is that they want to be protected to be able to use that content, uh, because of this whole copyright law. And anytime you use somebody's content that you did not produce, um, you need to, you know, depending upon where you use it, there's different ways that you have to cite them or whatever. And they don't want to have to deal with that. And by owning the content, they can use it however they want to and not worry about it. So you can give them, you know, all these uh, uh, basically a license and you say, hey, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's a a bunch of legal terms. Again, go go seek a lawyer to to say exactly how you should term that. But basically what I do is I say, hey, I own the content, but I give you license to use this in these 
ways, shapes, and forms. And I will line some of those out, or I'll just say, in any form that you please, blah, blah, blah. You can do it, you know, you could give somebody a license to only post it on their Instagram and not post it anywhere else. Or you could, you know, you can make it as tight or as broad as you want. Um, but that's the idea. And, and once you get that through, I have been, I think, almost 100% successful on that. I think I did have to walk away from one contract. I will not sign that type of contract if I'm putting it on my channel. I will sign that contract, though. I have made content for brands that they put on their channel. Mm -hmm. And for that, like that's, I'm, I'm fine with that. But what I also do with that is I will charge more because I don't get any of that residual goodness of it being on my channel to help drive views, to help grow my channel, to help give me ad revenue and sell plans down the road. Um, but if it is hosted on my website, my social media, or my YouTube, um, I own the rights to it and I will license rights out. And, and, you know, sometimes I license them for a year. Sometimes it'll be, um, in perpetuity, blah, blah, blah. Again, you can go through all that, but that's, that's probably one of the biggest things to think about as a content creator is ownership of the content. Yes. And to go along with that and kind of revert back to what the initial conversation with products is, uh, you also need to be considering the deliverables within it and as well as revisions, control of the content, um, and the type of stuff that can pop its head up that you're not usually used to seeing. For instance, if you're including blog posts, if you're including um, sponsorship links and stuff, you know, like a sponsor typically wants to get approval of those. Um, so you're going to have to send those over and those timeframes and stuff, those are all negotiable. But you just want to make sure that they're lined out favorably. So like if you're looking yeah. at it, you know, if they want, if a, if a, when you're making things physically, if a sponsor wants a two week, you know, approval time, for revisions, or a month, it's a like, month and seven days. It, I had that in one of my latest contracts, right? and I was like, "It's typically coming." From, I don't even know what I'm doing in a month and seven days. No, yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> in I've forgotten about the project I did a month ago. So, like, the uh, the um, the type of individuals that are sending these over, it's probably just be departmental, right? It's just there's a disconnect there, and when you're writing a piece of content for you know different industry, you don't have the physical building of it going into it. So you don't have, you know, the same issues that come up in the makerspace. Um, so just make sure that you're seeing all of those line items that we talked about in the product side of contracts clearly lined out in the um, in the content side of things, too. And, and it'll just make your life a lot easier. Um, and also you can, you know, print that out and create a little checklist for yourself to make sure that yes, when you're doing that client absolutely. stuff, that you're hitting it all on the head. Um so, I mean, I think the the major point there is what Brad touched on, which is ownership and, and usage um, and just making sure that you're not getting taken advantage of or that there's no miscommunication with who owns what and for redistribution props and all that kind of stuff. Um, exclusivity is another thing you want to make sure you're looking at yes, in a contract. That's a great one. Um, we've both run into it in the past where they squeaked in a line item in the back that's like <laughs> it's something that you use all the time. Yet they wanted six months of exclusivity after your right. termination of your contract. After termination, like, that whoa, wait—that's a huge one, right? So what what will happen a lot of times is a brand will say, and some of them can be very overarching. So they might say, um, you know, it, it can be very specific. I've had them be super specific that say like, um, like I, I've recently done a flooring thing. Like you will not work with these specific people on a flooring project in the next X Y Z six months. Yes, and I'm like, okay, cool. Like that's, that's fine. I've had other ones that have been super wide open that says you will not promote, uh, any brand 
any tool or any tool from any brand that sells any product that competes with any product in our space. So basically it's like, <laughs> you will not work with anybody else. I mean, it's, it's basically how it came across and you know, it had to be like, Hey guys, <laughs> this is a bit uh, too much because the way that, and it was like something about anybody who sells it. So basically I couldn't work with anybody who sells anything that, you know, could even come close to touching wood uh, type thing. And it's like, um, you know, Hey guys, this, this is a bit restrictive. So make sure you're understanding what those exclusivity lines uh, say and mean and the terms of them, like John said. So a lot of times is um, most contracts, there will, ha- there will be a term or they should all really have a term. So there's a term of the contract. And sometimes they will say, uh, you know, for the term plus 12 months, plus six months, plus three months, whatever that is, uh, you need to be very careful to understand what that means. Uh, and, and another thing to hit on here, especially in content side, as, as we wrap this up here, I, I think the the biggest thing is that, again, these when you get the contracts that are so long and so large, is that um, everything is negotiable one, for one. Everything is negotiable. And for two, you don't have to sign it. Right. I know that uh, would people, uh, you know, some people just sign. They're like so excited. So one thing I would say is is any make sure the very first thing make sure you are reading any contract that you get. If somebody wants you to sign a contract, make sure you understand what it says. Seek legal help. Uh, if you don't understand it, make sure you seek legal help. And then don't think you have to sign it. Like you go back and like those things you don't feel comfortable with, ask for changes. Uh, I think a lot of people are also scared. They're like, oh my gosh, like this is my first deal, right? And I, I don't want to blow this. And like these people are going to be mad at me. The marketing people could care less. Like for one thing, the legal people and the marketing people are, are two different things. If you come back and say, hey, there's some legal things I need to change, the marketing people don't have any idea what you're talking about for the most part anyway. Yeah, they're not really <laughs> and, unless they're like, I, I don't know what that means either. Like we'll, we'll throw this over the legal. Um, or they've, they've probably gotten that request several, several times and they're probably very familiar with it. So, so don't be scared to ask for changes. They will change what they can change. And if they have some non-negotiables, they'll let you know. And uh, like, for instance, that work for hire. If they say, no, we need to own the content, then you need to decide is the money they're giving you worth giving up that ownership um, is getting a you know the possibility of getting an email or a phone call at any point in the future to tell you to remove all content that you've produced is that worth the the free tool that they gave you and I mean you're you're not going to sign a contract for a free tool typically but once there's cash involved or payment involved is typically where the contract will come into play so uh, you know be very aware of that. You don't have to sign it and it's all negotiable and know what you're signing. Yes. Yes. So hopefully you guys got something out of this episode. Like we said, just a disclaimer one more time. We are not lawyers. We are not giving you professional legal advice. We definitely advocate for seeking that out within whatever state, country, town, uh, whatever you <laughs> wherever Galaxy. you are. Yes. Um, in order to make sure that you are taken care of. Um, this is something that is important, uh, as, but it is not the end of the world if you're not up to snuff 100% on your contracts. Make sure it's something that you're working on, though, because it can definitely help you uh, long term in your in your business, or just offload it to your fiance and find someone that, that can, <laughs> or just yeah. or that, that can help you with it. But so, in all seriousness, um, we do hope that you got something out of this. It's been something on the back of our minds for a long time. Um, and Absolutely. we'd love to hear what you guys think over on Instagram. If you did dig this show, um, head on over to Made for Profit. Leave us a comment on the show uh, post and let us know what you thought about this. Because these are these are the kind of topics that Brad and I go back and forth on. You know, I'm, and if there's uh, anything else out there that's similar to 
the uh, contracts conversation, let us know. Maybe we'll do another show on uh, something that maybe we don't know everything about because we're not lawyers. Yeah, because we're not lawyers <laughs> and we don't know. Absolutely. So, yeah, hit, hit us up over there. And uh, don't forget the spring make if you want to take – advantage uh this is the last few weeks of here of getting in on that so you can use the code made for profit for 200 bucks off and you can go check all that out in the show notes made for profit uh com forward slash episode 91 all right john let's go hit the after show let's do it <laughs>